Hello, all you Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 11. This week, we're going to be talking through Judges chapter 17 through 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, chapter 17 through 21 of Judges is what is often termed as an appendix to the book. These chapters contain two stories, stories that demonstrated what it was like to live during this period of Israel's history, stories that show us just how morally bankrupt this time was for Israel. And so these chapters don't have a time stamp, so we cannot be certain as to when they happened during the 300-year period of the Judges. Chapter 17 and 18 describe a story about idolatry, demonstrating how Israel had abandoned God. The story introduces us to a man named Micah, who was from the hill country of Ephraim, and we find out that he had stolen some money from his mother, and upon returning it to her, she decided to take some of it and give it to a silversmith to make an idol. And then... Micah wants to ordain one of his sons as a priest. Now you can begin to see how this picture is all wrong. In the next act, we find a Levite who eventually comes to the household of Micah. And Micah offers him a wage to become a priest for his house. I guess maybe he felt better having a Levite as a priest than one of his sons. Go figure. Anyway, the Levite takes up the offer of Micah and agrees to be his priest. And Micah believes that the Lord will bless him because of this. Act 3 starts in chapter 18 with the tribe of Dan. The story goes, the Danites were unable to occupy the territory that Joshua had given them because the Amorites had forced them into the mountains. Judges chapter 1 verses 34 to 36 tell us that. So the tribe sends out five emissaries to scope out a better place for them to settle. They come to Micah's house, and while they are there, they recognize the Levite's voice. It seems they must have known him somehow. They asked him to inquire of the Lord as to whether or not their journey to find new land to settle in would be successful. And so the Levite says, in so many words, that their journey would be successful. By the way, the tabernacle at this time was located only a few miles away. Surely these Danites could have traveled a few miles to officially inquire of the Lord. But they didn't, so back to the story. The Danites find an area or a city called Laish and send word for some reinforcements to secure this new land. So we learn that 600 are sent um, back to help conquer this land. They come back to Micah's house and ask the Levite, wouldn't you rather serve a tribe of people rather than just one household? The Levite agreed to be the priest for the whole tribe, and of course this upsets Micah because he has now lost his priest. And in the last act of this story, the Danites set up idols in this new area and continue to worship them. Then the very last verse of this chapter is a real kicker. We find out the name of this Levite. He is revealed to be a descendant of Moses. Yes, that's right, Moses, the man who was most responsible for directing people to serve God only. Here's a descendant of him that is leading people away from serving God only. There are many things wrong with the story, but that's the point, because every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, the second story comes from chapters 19 through 21. This story revolves around another Levite. Act 1 starts out with a Levite who had taken a concubine from Bethlehem as a wife, and she becomes unfaithful to him and ends up going back to Jerusalem where she was from. And so after four months, the Levite goes to Jerusalem to restore their relationship and to bring her back. And on the way back, they stay in a town named Gibeah and are taken in by an older gentleman. Now in the evening time, evil men of the city beat on the door of the old man's house, wanting him to send out the Levite so these men can have homosexual relations with this Levite. Instead, what happens is that the Levite's concubine is thrown out to these men, and they rape and abuse her, leaving her for dead. Again, there is so much wrong with this story, but it's not over. 
In Act 2, the next day the Levite is ready to leave, and he finds that his concubine is dead. And so he decides to cut up her body into 12 pieces and send one piece each to each of the 12 tribes. The purpose of this act was to awaken Israel from her apostasy and take action, because the men who had done this to the concubine were from Gibeah, and Gibeah was a city of Benjamin. Now, once all the tribes knew about this event, each tribe sends a delegation to Mizpah. That's in chapter 20. And this this Act 3, we find that at Mizpah, the Levite recounts the events of what happened that night for all to hear. The whole assembly desires to take action against the men of Gibeah, and they formally request the men who committed this act to be turned over for punishment. But instead of turning the men over for battle, Benjamin responds with a call to war. The other 11 tribes go up in a battle against the Benjamites, but they are defeated initially. They attack again, but they fail again. But the third attack here, they have a strategy, and that strategy employed enables them to defeat the Benjamites. Now, in Act 4, which gets us to chapter 21, shows us the results of this war. The other 11 tribes had taken an oath from Mizpah not to give their daughters in marriage to anyone from Benjamin. And without wives, the tribe of Benjamin would cease to exist because right now they're down to 600. And so a search is conducted in the war records, and this search indicates that the men of Jabez-Gilead did not participate in the battle, and therefore judgment needs to be rendered. And so 12,000 men from the larger assembly go up against this city with instruction to save only young women. They're able to save 400 for the tribe of Benjamin, however, they are still 200 wives short. So the 200 wives were taken from the festivals at Shiloh. Have I said it enough? There is so much wrong with this picture. There is so much wrong with Israel at this time in her history. The Israelites needed no judge or king to lead them into apostasy or battle. They did it fine on their own. Well, thankfully, it's time to leave Judges and move into a more encouraging story from the book of Ruth, which we are told happened during the time of the Judges. So I guess you might say that Ruth was a rose among the thorns. You will read Ruth in one day, so let me give you a brief summary of the book. The story of Ruth begins by noting a famine that had hit the land of Israel. A family of Israel moved to Moab to try to avoid the famine, and while in Moab, the two sons married two Moabite women. In the process of time, the two sons died, as did the father, leaving three widows to face life alone. When news comes that the famine is over, the mother, Naomi, decided to return home, and Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law, insisted on going with her. As they got home, Ruth volunteered to care for the needs of Naomi by going into the fields and gleaning. This was allowed under the law. They could pick the leftovers from the fields. Of the fields that Ruth was picking from was the field of Boaz. Boaz had heard of the godliness and kindness of Ruth toward her mother-in-law, and he allowed her to take home an unusual amount of grain. Naomi had already been forced into selling her late husband's property in order to survive, and since her sons had also died, there was no male descendant to carry on the family line. So Naomi devised a plan that would help both her and Ruth. Therefore, acting on Naomi's instructions, Ruth goes to Boaz and claimed his protection since he was a near relative to Naomi. Boaz was willing as well as anxious to do this, but there was a closer relative than Boaz. And so going to the gate of the city, Boaz took the necessary legal steps to care for the matter. In the end, Boaz marries Ruth, and they had a son named Obed, and Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse would have a son named David. Now the book of Ruth shows us that there were godly people during the era of the judges. Even though the nation found itself in deep apostasy, 
Sea, there were people in Israel who loved God and obeyed God. In the book of Judges, Israel forsakes the Lord and turns to idols, whereas in the book of Ruth, one Gentile woman turns from her idols to serve the one true living God. Now it's on to 1 Samuel. A few things to remember when reading this book. First, people cooperate with God by either being loyal or by being disloyal to Him. Second thing to remember is that God will accomplish his purposes regardless of man's personal response to him. All territory is within God's jurisdiction. Third, 1 Samuel is a great transitional time in the life of Israel. A transition as Israel goes from a theocracy, meaning God is ruling over the nation, to a monarchy where a man chosen by God is ruling over the nation. And then fourth, originally, First and Second Samuel were all one book. It wasn't until the third century BC that they were divided into two separate books. So First Samuel is basically divided up into three sections. Chapters one through seven is about Samuel as judge and prophet. Chapters eight through twelve is about Saul, Israel's first king. And then chapters thirteen through thirty-one are concerning the decline of Saul and the rise of David. So let's look at chapter one. In chapter one, we find Samuel's birth and childhood are described. Samuel's mother, Hannah, did not have any children, and so she would regularly go to the temple and pray for a son. Hannah was so desperate that if the Lord gave her a son, she promised to dedicate him to the Lord as a Nazarite. In due time, Hannah does give birth to a son, and when he was old enough, she took him to the temple and dedicated him to the Lord as a Nazarite. Samuel was placed under Eli's training in preparation for the priesthood. And then in chapter 2, we read Hannah's song. It was a great expression of praise for the goodness of God in giving her a son. This was a similar expression imitated later by Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1. And Samuel's environment at the tabernacle had both a positive and negative elements. Positive in that he was intimately involved with the high priest Eli, but negatively in that he was exposed to Eli's two godless and immoral sons. And these two sons, were told in the text of chapter 2, took advantage of their positions by stealing the best of the sacrifices and also by engaging in sacred prostitution right in the vicinity of the tabernacle. Eli, we're told, is confronted with his son's wickedness, and the Lord informed him that because of his son's actions, God was going to terminate his priesthood and replace it with one that was more faithful to him. Of course, as the narrative flows, Samuel's priesthood would be the one chosen to replace Eli's. But meanwhile, Samuel, coming to grow and mature, he's being obedient to the Lord. Also, the text says that the Lord blesses Hannah and gives her three sons and two daughters in addition to Samuel. And that leads us right into chapter 3, where we find the official call of Samuel. The first verse of this chapter tells us that the word of God was rare in those days. You see, because normally special revelations from God were given to prophets in the form of visions and dreams. But at this point in Israel's history, those types of special revelations did not happen very often, namely because of Israel's disobedience. However, the call of Samuel would change this, because after Samuel, through the aid of Eli, realizes that it's God who is calling him, Samuel relays an important message to Eli, one I think that Eli knew was coming. It was just a matter of time. This was the second time Eli had a prophecy of his family's future, and thus I think he knew that the prediction was guaranteed to come to pass. And he graciously accepted God's will. And the last few verses of this chapter of chapter 3 show Samuel's continued ministry as a prophet in Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. 
So the first three chapters of 1 Samuel prepare us for the rest of 1st and 2nd Samuel as a whole, because they teach us that God responds to the faith of people, even insignificant people. You see, a barren, despised woman became the mother of Israel's most powerful man because she trusted and obeyed God. As you move into chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, the focus shifts to the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines, who had been in the land for about a century, now begin thinking about conquering the entire land. By the way, the Philistines, Philistines seem to be Israel's arch enemy or their nemesis. They appear on the scene and wreak havoc, and then Israel defeats them, and they disappear for a while. Samson had dealt with the Philistines, uh, had dealt them a fatal blow in Judges 16, but like an arch enemy, uh, they weren't down for long. In this chapter, Israel was in a battle with them, and they were not winning. And so they have the bright idea to get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh and bring it into battle. But the superstitious use of God's Ark was totally ineffective. And furthermore, not only did the Philistines win the battle, 30,000 Israelites, Israelites, yes, that's right, 30,000 of them died. And the Ark was captured by the enemy. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in battle. And so the Israelites believed that the ark would guarantee victory instead of going to the one who indwelt the ark. Well, the news returns to Eli about what has happened, and he fell over backwards and died instantly. But in this verse, verse 18, there is a wordplay in the original Hebrew. The Hebrew word for heavy is kabed, and the word for glory is kabod. And so rather than Israel enjoying God's presence through Eli's priesthood, Eli himself had received the glory as his heavy weight evidenced. So Eli's self-indulgence was responsible for the departure of the glory from Israel and from his line. That's a big deal. Eli's sons, it seems, learned their wicked ways from their father. Or maybe Eli didn't correct his sons from their wicked ways and join them in their wickedness. Whatever the case, both Eli and his sons were culpable, and therefore God's actions here were just. Now in chapter 15, the Philistines, we find, take the ark the symbol of their victory over Israel's God, and they place it at the feet of their false god named Dagon. And the next day, the idol Dagon was lying prostrate before the ark, and it was set up again, the idol was, only later to fall down the next day with a broken limb. Clearly, God was demonstrating to the Philistines the power of Israel's God, and so the ark was sent to another Philistine city, only to cause more harm to the Philistines. And finally, the Philistines decided to place the ark on a cart without a driver. If the animals took the cart back to Israel, then the Philistines would know that their calamities were because of Israel's God. But if the animals didn't do anything, then they would assume that what has happened to them was just a fluke. Well, I'm assuming you know what happened. The ark was returned to Israelite territory and a great celebration ensued. However, that celebration was short-lived as a great number of the people died because their irreverent act of peeking or looking, taking off the top and looking inside the ark. Think about it for a minute. The penalty paid by God's people for their own sacrilege was much greater than that of the pagan Philistines. Even the Philistines knew not to open up the ark and look inside. God's expectation for those whom he has revealed himself to are always much greater. And so because of what happens, the ark is sent to another town called Kirjath-Jerim, a few miles west of Jerusalem, and it stays there for a while. As you move into chapter 7, it takes us back to the ministry of Samuel. 
This chapter has a lot of similarities with the book of Judges. Now, Eli and Samuel were were unique individuals because they were both priests and judges. And Samuel instructs the people on their need to repent and convenes a national assembly of repentance. And the assembly was briefly interrupted by the Philistines, but God intervened and sent the enemy away in a panic. And Samuel constructs a monument to commemorate God's victory and gave it the name Ebenezer, which means stone of God's help. As for Samuel, he served the Lord for the rest of his days. And verses 15 through 17 of chapter 7 are much like a summary of his life. He covered a four-town circuit, and he was what we would call a circuit-riding preacher and a circuit-riding, circuit-riding judge. So he would visit these four towns remind them of God's law, and the judge in those towns. Now, as we move into chapter 8, we find that Samuel is advanced in years, and his sons, who were placed into judgeship, were disqualified because of their greedy ways. Therefore, the people go to Samuel and ask him for a king, quote, like the other nations. Now, we must be careful to understand at this point that God made provision for kings to rule his people in the law of Moses. If you read Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, you'll find that out. The request for a king in itself was not what was displeasing to Samuel and God. It was the reason they wanted a king. This was problematic on two fronts, because first, it expressed dissatisfaction with God's present method of providing leadership through the judges. And secondly, it verbalized Israel's desire to be like the other nations. God's purpose for Israel was that she be different from the other nations, superior to them, a light to them, an example for them to follow. But it seems they didn't want to be like everyone else. So God saw this request as yet another instance of them walking away from him. He accepted their requests as he had done many times before. For example, in the wilderness, providing manna, quail, and water when they whined and complained. But Samuel himself was being rejected by the people. And maybe now he better understood how Moses felt when his godly leadership was also rejected by the people. Well, Samuel informs the people what will happen if they crown a king. The price of kingship would be fivefold. First, there would be a military draft. Second, the people of the land would be put into servitude. Third, widespread land confiscation. Fourth, taxes, taxes, and more taxes. And fifth, the loss of personal liberty. But then chapter 9 tells us that Saul is chosen to be Israel's first king. God orients the paths of Saul and Samuel to cross so they meet each other, and it seems that Samuel wines and dines him. Chapter 10 tells us that the next day Samuel is seeing Saul, as Samuel is seeing Saul out of town, a private anointing ceremony takes place where Samuel privately anoints Saul to be the next king of Israel. Anointing with oil was symbolic and pictured consecration to service. The only things anointed with oil before this ceremony were the priests and the tabernacle. And so the oil symbolized God's spirit and anointed with oil represented endowment with that spirit for enablement. And so Samuel then gives Saul three signs that would verify his new kingship and that Samuel had anointed him in harmony with God's will. Now, Saul had been privately anointed, as we just said. The next step was to be chosen by Lot publicly. You see, Samuel gathers all the people at Mizpah to make an announcement of a new king, and they cast lots for him. The casting of lots in a public fashion showed all of Israel that Saul was God's choice, not Samuel's choice. Of course, if you know the story, you know that Saul was hiding when he was chosen to be king. Was he hiding because he was humble, or maybe because he didn't want to assume the role of leadership? It seems that he was wise enough to know that this would be the hardest task of his life. And so in chapter 11, Saul proves his worth as a king. 
as an effective military leader and unites the nation into battle. And because of his great success, the nation rallies behind him. In chapter 12, after this great victory over the enemy, Samuel steps down from his leadership position as judge and turns over full leadership to Saul as king. But unfortunately, after just two years of reigning, Saul begins a downward spiral. Chapter 13 shows us this. The first rejection of Saul takes place in chapters 13 and 14, as Saul did not wait for Samuel to sacrifice to God before going to battle. And Samuel rebukes Saul for not waiting. And as a result, the text says that Saul's kingdom would be taken from him. You know, lest we think that God is being harsh here, punishing Saul in a significant way for one transgression, think back to Moses, a leader of God's people, who also for one transgression prevented him from entering the promised land and enjoying it with God's people. The second rejection of Saul takes place in chapter 15, as Saul did not follow all of Samuel's instructions to destroy everything from the battle as God commanded. Samuel takes matters into his own hands and kills the Amalekite king himself right in front of Saul. After this event, the text is very ominous, and it says in verse 34 of chapter 15, Samuel never went to meet with Saul again, but he mourned constantly for him. You know, Saul had so much potential, and there is so much to say about Saul and Samuel's relationship, time that we don't have, unfortunately. In the case of Saul, I think this quote given about Abraham Lincoln by a speaker after his death is fitting here. And the quote says this, If you want to find out what a man is to the bottom, give him power. Any man can stand adversity. Only a great man can stand prosperity. Now that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, David will start to emerge in the narrative and we'll begin to talk about him. He, being a king but he was also a man after God's own heart. Send any questions to BibleReadingLMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.